Section 85 of the Book of Household Management. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. The Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton. Recipes. Chapter 37, Part 1. To make chocolate. 1807. Ingredients. Allow half ounce of chocolate to each person. To every ounce, allow half a pint of water, half a pint of milk. Mode. Make the milk and water hot. Scrape the chocolate into it, and stir the mixture constantly and quickly until the chocolate is dissolved. Bring it to the boiling point, stir it well, and serve directly with white sugar. Chocolate prepared in a mill, as shown in the engraving, is made by putting in the scraped chocolate, pouring over it the boiling milk and water, and milling it over the fire until hot and frothy. Sufficient. Allow half ounce of cake chocolate to each person. Chocolate and cocoa. Both these preparations are made from the seeds or beans of the cocoa tree, which grows in the West Indies and South America. The Spanish, and the proper, name is cacao, not cocoa, as it is generally spelt. From this mistake, the tree from which the beverage is procured has been often confounded with the palm that produces the edible cocoa nuts, which are the produce of the cocoa tree, Cocos nucifera, whereas the tree from which chocolate is procured is very different, the Theobroma cacao. The cocoa tree was cultivated by the aboriginal inhabitants of South America, particularly in Mexico, where, according to Humboldt, it was reared by Montezuma. It was transplanted thence into other dependencies of the Spanish monarchy in 1520, and it was so highly esteemed by Linnaeus as to receive from him the name now conferred upon it of Theobroma, a term derived from the Greek and signifying food for gods. Chocolate has always been a favorite beverage among the Spaniards and Creoles, and was discovered here as a great luxury when first introduced after the discovery of America. But the high duties laid upon it confined it long almost entirely to the wealthier classes. Before it was subjected to duty, Mr. Brian Edwards stated that cocoa plantations were numerous in Jamaica, but that the duty caused their almost entire ruin. The removal of this duty has increased their cultivation. To make essence of coffee, 1808. Ingredients. To every quarter pound of ground coffee, allow one small teaspoonful of powdered chicory, three small teacupfuls, or one pint of water. Mode. Let the coffee be freshly ground and if possible freshly roasted. Put it into a percolator or filter with the chicory, and pour slowly over it the above proportion of boiling water. When it has all filtered through, warm the coffee sufficiently to bring it to the simmering point, but do not allow it to boil. Then filter it a second time, and put it into a clean and dry bottle. Cork it well, and it will remain good for several days. Two tablespoonsful of this essence are quite sufficient for a breakfast cup full of hot milk. This essence will be found particularly useful to those persons who have to rise extremely early, and having only the milk to make boiling, is very easily and quickly prepared. When the essence is bottled, pour another three teacupfuls of boiling water slowly on the grounds, which, when filtered through, will be a very weak coffee. The next time there is essence to be prepared, make this weak coffee boiling, and pour it on the ground coffee instead of plain water. By this means a better coffee will be obtained. Never throw away the grounds without having made use of them in this manner. 
and always cork the bottle well that contains this preparation, until the day that it is wanted for making the fresh essence. Time. To be filtered once, then brought to the boiling point, and filtered again. Average cost. With coffee at one shilling eight pence per pound, six pence. Sufficient. Allow two tablespoonsful for a breakfast cupful of hot milk. To roast coffee. A French recipe. 1809. It being an acknowledged fact that French coffee is decidedly superior to that made in England, and as the roasting of the berry is of great importance to the flavour of the preparation, it will be useful and interesting to know how they manage these things in France. In Paris there are two houses justly celebrated for the flavour of their coffee, La Maison Corselette and La Maison Royer de Chartres. And to obtain this flavour, before roasting they add to every three pounds of coffee a piece of butter the size of a nut, and a dessert-spoonful of powdered sugar. It is then roasted in the usual manner. The addition of the butter and sugar develops the flavour and aroma of the berry, but it must be borne in mind that the quality of butter must be of the very best description. To make coffee, 1810. Ingredients. Allow four ounces, or one tablespoonful, of ground coffee to each person. To every ounce of coffee allow one-third pint of water. Mode. To make coffee good, it should never be boiled, but the boiling water merely poured on it, the same as for tea. The coffee should always be purchased in the berry, if possible freshly roasted, and it should never be ground long before it is wanted for use. There are very many new kinds of coffee pots, but the method of making the coffee is nearly always the same, namely pouring the boiling water on the powder, and allowing it to filter through. Our illustration shows one of Loisel's hydrostatic urns, which are admirably adapted for making good and clear coffee, which should be made in the following manner. Warm the urn with boiling water, remove the lid and movable filter, and place the ground coffee at the bottom of the urn. Put the movable filter over this, and screw the lid inverted tightly on the end of the centre pipe. Pour into the inverted lid the above proportion of boiling water, and when all water so poured has disappeared from the funnel, and made its way down the centre pipe and up again through the ground coffee by hydrostatic pressure, unscrew the lid and cover the urn. Pour back direct into the urn, not through the funnel, one, two, or three cups, according to the size of the percolator, in order to make the infusion of uniform strength. The contents will then be ready for use, and should be run from the tap strong, hot, and clear. The coffee made in these urns generally turns out very good. There is but one objection to them. The coffee runs rather slowly from the tap. This is of no consequence when there is a small party, but tedious where there are many persons to provide for. A remedy for this objection may be suggested, namely to make the coffee very strong, so that not more than one-third of a cup would be required, as the rest would be filled up with milk. Making coffee in filters or percolators does away with the necessity of using isinglass, white of egg, and various other preparations to clear it. Coffee should always be served very hot, and if possible in the same vessel in which it is made, as pouring it from one pot to another cools and consequently spoils it. Many persons may think that the proportion of water we have given for each ounce of coffee is rather small. It is so, and the coffee produced from it will be very strong. A third of a cup will be found quite sufficient, which should be filled with nice hot milk, or milk and cream mixed. This is the café au lait for which our neighbours over the channel are so justly celebrated. Should the ordinary method of making coffee be preferred, use double the quantity of water, 
and in pouring it into the cups, put in more coffee and less milk. Sufficient. For very good coffee, allow half ounce or one tablespoonful to each person. A very simple method of making coffee. 1811. Ingredients. Allow half ounce or one tablespoonful of coffee to each person. To every ounce, allow one pint of water. Mode. Have a small iron ring made to fit the top of a coffee pot inside, and to this ring sew a small muslin bag. The muslin for the purpose must not be too thin. Fit the bag into the pot. Pour some boiling water in it, and when the pot is well warmed, put the ground coffee into the bag. Pour over as much boiling water as required. Close the lid, and when all the water has filtered through, remove the bag and send the coffee to table. Making it in this manner prevents the necessity of pouring the coffee from one vessel to another, which cools and spoils it. The water should be poured on the coffee gradually, so that the infusion may be stronger, and the bag must be well made, so that none of the grounds may escape through the seams, and so make the coffee thick and muddy. Sufficient. Allow one tablespoonful, or half ounce, to each person. The coffee plant grows to the height of about twelve or fifteen feet, with leaves not unlike those of the common laurel, although more pointed, and not so dry and thick. The blossoms are white, much like those of jasmine, and issue from the angles of the leaf stalks. When the flowers fade, they are succeeded by the coffee bean, or seed, which is enclosed in the berry of a red colour, when ripe resembling a cherry. The coffee beans are prepared by exposing them to the sun for a few days, that the pulp may ferment and throw off a strong, acidulous moisture. They are then gradually dried for about three weeks, and put into a mill to separate the husk from the seed. Café au lait, 1812. This is merely very strong coffee added to a large proportion of good hot milk, about sixteen tablespoonsful of strong coffee being quite sufficient for a breakfast cupful of milk. Of the essence number 1808, which answers admirably for café au lait, so much would not be required. This preparation is infinitely superior to the weak, watery coffee so often served at English tables. A little cream mixed with the milk, if the latter cannot be depended on for richness, improves the taste of the coffee, as also the richness of the beverage. Sufficient. Six tablespoonsful of strong coffee, or two tablespoonsful of the essence, to a breakfast cup of milk. Tea and coffee. It is true, says Liebig, that thousands have lived without a knowledge of tea and coffee, and daily experience teaches us that under certain circumstances they may be dispensed with without disadvantage to the merely animal functions, but it is an error, certainly, to conclude from this that they may be altogether dispensed with in reference to their effects. And it is a question whether, if we had no tea or no coffee, the popular instinct would not seek for and discover the means of replacing them science, which accuses us of so much in these respects, will have in the first place to ascertain whether it depends on sensual and sinful inclinations merely that every people of the globe have appropriated some such means of acting on the nervous life, from the shore of the Pacific, where the Indian retires from life for days in order to enjoy the blissful intoxication with cocoa, to the Arctic regions where Kamitschatsdales and Koryakis prepare an intoxicating beverage from a poisonous mushroom, we think it, on the contrary, highly probable, not to say certain, that the instinct of man, feeling certain blanks, certain wants of the intensified life of our times, which cannot be satisfied or filled up by mere quantity, has discovered in these products of vegetable life the true means of giving to his food the desired and necessary quality.
Café Noir, 1813. This is usually handed round after dinner, and should be drunk well sweetened with the addition of a little brandy or liqueur, which may be added or not at pleasure. The coffee should be made very strong, and served in very small cups, but never mixed with milk or cream. Café Noir may be made of the essence of coffee, number 1808, by pouring a tablespoonful into each cup, and filling it up with boiling water. This is a very simple and expeditious manner of preparing coffee for a large party, but the essence for it must be made very good, and kept well corked until required for use. To Make Tea, 1814 There is very little art in making good tea. If the water is boiling, and there is no sparing of the fragrant leaf, the beverage will almost invariably be good. The old-fashioned plan of allowing a teaspoonful to each person, and one over, is still practiced. Warm the teapot with boiling water. Let it remain for two or three minutes for the vessel to become thoroughly hot. Then pour it away. Put in the tea. Pour in from half to three-quarter pint of boiling water. Close the lid, and let it stand for the tea to draw from five to ten minutes. Then fill up the pot with water. The tea will be quite spoiled unless made with water that is actually boiling, as the leaves will not open, and the flavor will not be extracted from them. The beverage will consequently be colorless and tasteless, in fact nothing but tepid water. Where there is a very large party to make tea for, it is a good plan to have two teapots instead of putting a large quantity of tea into one pot. The tea, besides, will go further. When the infusion has been once completed, the addition of fresh tea adds very little to the strength, so when more is required, have the pot emptied of the old leaves, scalded, and fresh tea made in the usual manner. Economists say that a few grains of carbonate of soda, added before the boiling water is poured on the tea, assist to dry out the goodness. If the water is very hard, perhaps it is a good plan, as the soda softens it, but care must be taken to use this ingredient sparingly, as it is liable to give the tea a soapy taste if added in too large a quantity. For mixed tea, the usual proportion is four spoonfuls of black to one of green, more of the latter when the flavor is very much liked, but strong green tea is highly pernicious, and should never be partaken of too freely. Time. Two minutes to warm the teapot. Five to ten minutes to draw the strength from the tea. Sufficient. Allow one teaspoonful to each person, and one over. Tea. The tea tree, or shrub, belongs to the class and order of Monadelphia polyandria, in the Linnaean system, and to the natural order of Orantiaceae in the system of Jesu. Lately it has been made into a new order, the Theasia, which includes the Camellia and some other plants. It commonly grows to the height of from three to six feet, but it is said that in its wild or native state it reaches twenty feet or more. In China it is cultivated in numerous small plantations. In its general appearance and the form of its leaf it resembles the myrtle. The blossoms are white and fragrant, not unlike those of the wild rose, but smaller, and they are succeeded by soft green capsules containing each from one to three white seeds. These capsules are crushed for oil, which is in general use in China. An excellent substitute for milk or cream in tea or coffee. 1815. Ingredients. Allow one new-laid egg to every large breakfast cupful of tea or coffee. Mode. Beat up the whole of the egg in a basin, and put it into a cup or a portion of it if the cup be small, and pour it over the tea or coffee very hot. These should be added very gradually and stirred all the time to prevent the egg from curdling. 
In point of nourishment, both these beverages are much improved by this addition. Sufficient. Allow one egg to every large breakfast cupful of tea or coffee. To make cocoa. 1816. Ingredients. Allow two teaspoonfuls of the prepared cocoa to one breakfast cup. Boiling milk and boiling water. Mode. Put the cocoa into a breakfast cup. Pour over it sufficient cold milk to make it into a smooth paste. Then add equal quantities of boiling milk and boiling water, and stir all well together. Care must be taken not to allow the milk to get burnt, as it will entirely spoil the flavor of the preparation. The above directions are usually given for making the prepared cocoa. The rock cocoa, or that bought in a solid piece, should be scraped, and made in the same manner, taking care to rub down all the lumps before the boiling liquid is added. Sufficient. Two teaspoonfuls of prepared cocoa for one breakfast cup, or one quarter ounce of the rock cocoa for the same quantity. Cowslip Wine, 1817. Ingredients. To every gallon of water, allow three pounds of lump sugar, the rind of two lemons, the juice of one, the rind and juice of one Seville orange, one gallon of cowslip pips. To every four and a half gallons of wine, allow one bottle of brandy. Mode. Boil the sugar and water together for half hour carefully removing all the scum as it rises. Pour this boiling liquor on the orange and lemon rinds, and the juice which should be strained. When milk warm, add the cowslip pips or flowers, picked from the stalks and seeds, and to nine gallons of wine three tablespoons full of good fresh brewer's yeast. Let it ferment three or four days. Then put all together in a cask with the brandy, and let it remain for two months, when bottle it off for use. Time to be boiled half hour, to ferment three or four days, to remain in the cask two months. Average cost, exclusive of the cowslips, which may be picked in the fields, two shilling nine pence per gallon. Seasonable. Make this in April or May. Elder Wine, 1818. Ingredients. To every three gallons of water, allow one peck of elderberries. To every gallon of juice, allow three pounds of sugar, a half ounce of ground ginger, six cloves, one pound of good turkey raisins, half a pint of brandy to every gallon of wine. To every nine gallons of wine, three or four tablespoonfuls of fresh brewer's yeast. Mode. Pour the water, quite boiling, on the elderberries, which should be picked from the stalks, and let these stand covered for twenty-four hours. Then strain the whole through a sieve or bag, breaking the fruit to express all the juice from it. Measure the liquor, and to every gallon allow the above proportions of sugar. Boil the juice and sugar with the ginger, cloves, and raisins for one hour, skimming the liquor the whole time. Let it stand until milk warm. Then put it into a clean dry cask, with three or four tablespoons full of good fresh yeast to every nine gallons of wine. Let it ferment for about a fortnight. Then add the brandy, bung up the cask, and let it stand some months before it is bottled, when it will be found excellent. A bunch of hops, suspended to a string from the bung, some persons say, will preserve the wine good for several years. Elder wine is usually mulled, and served with sippets of toasted bread and a little grated nutmeg. Time. To stand covered twenty-four hours. To be boiled one hour. Average cost, when made at home, three shillings six pence per gallon. Seasonable. Make this in September. Elderberry wine. The elderberry is well adapted for the production of wine, 
its juice contains a considerable portion of the principle necessary for a vigorous fermentation, and its beautiful color communicates a rich tint to the wine made from it. It is, however, deficient in sweetness, and therefore demands an addition of sugar. It is one of the very best of the genuine old English wines, and a cup of it mulled, just previous to retiring to bed on a winter night, is a thing to be run for, as Cobbett would say. It is not, however, agreeable to every taste. Ginger Wine, 1819. Ingredients. To nine gallons of water allow twenty-seven pounds of loaf sugar, nine lemons, twelve ounces of bruised ginger, three tablespoonfuls of yeast, two pounds of raisins, stoned and chopped, one pint of brandy. Mode. Boil together for one hour in a copper, let it previously be well scoured and beautifully clean. The water, sugar, lemon rinds, and bruised ginger, and remove every particle of scum as it rises, and when the liquor is sufficiently boiled, put it into a large tub or pan, as it must not remain in the copper. When nearly cold, add the yeast, which must be thick and very fresh, and the next day put all in a dry cask with the strained lemon juice and chopped raisins. Stir the wine every day for a fortnight, then add the brandy, stop the cask down by degrees, and in a few weeks it will be fit to bottle. Average cost, two shillings per gallon. Sufficient to make nine gallons of wine. Seasonable. The best time for making this wine is either in March or September. Note, wine made early in March will be fit to bottle in June. Gooseberry Vinegar, an excellent recipe. 1820. Ingredients. Two pecks of crystal gooseberries. Six gallons of water. Twelve pounds of foot's sugar of the coarsest brown quality. Mode. Mash the gooseberries, which should be quite ripe, in a tub with a mallet. Put to them the water nearly milk-warm. Let this stand twenty-four hours, then strain it through a sieve, and put the sugar to it. Mix it well, and tun it. These proportions are for a nine-gallon cask, and if it be not quite full, more water must be added. Let the mixture be stirred from the bottom of the cask two or three times daily for three or four days, to assist the melting of the sugar. Then paste a piece of linen cloth over the bunghole, and set the cask in a warm place, but not in the sun. Any corner of a warm kitchen is the best situation for it. The following spring it should be drawn off into stone bottles, and the vinegar will be fit for use twelve months after it is made. This will be found a most excellent preparation, greatly superior to much that is sold under the name of the best white wine vinegar. Many years' experience has proved that pickle made with this vinegar will keep, when bought vinegar will not preserve the ingredients. The cost per gallon is merely nominal, especially to those who reside in the country and grow their own gooseberries. The coarse sugar is then the only ingredient to be purchased. Time. To remain in the cask nine months. Average cost. When the gooseberries have to be purchased, one shilling per gallon. When they are grown at home, six pence per gallon. Seasonable. This should be made the end of June or the beginning of July, when gooseberries are ripe and plentiful. Effervescing Gooseberry Wine, 1821. Ingredients. To every gallon of water allow six pounds of green gooseberries, three pounds of lump sugar. Mode. This wine should be prepared from unripe gooseberries, in order to avoid the flavor which the fruit would give to the wine when in a mature state. Its briskness depends more upon the time of bottling than upon the unripe state of the fruit, for effervescing wine can be made from fruit that is ripe as well as that which is unripe. 
the fruit should be selected when it has nearly attained full growth, and consequently before it shows any tendency to ripen. Any bruised or decayed berries, and those that are very small, should be rejected. The blossom and stalk ends should be removed, and the fruit well bruised in a tub or pan, in such quantities as to ensure every berry being broken without crushing the seeds. Pour the water, which should be warm, on the fruit. Squeeze and stir it with the hand until all the pulp is removed from the skin and seeds, and cover the whole closely for twenty-four hours. After which, strain it through a coarse bag, and press it with as much force as can be conveniently applied, to extract the whole of the juice and liquor the fruit may contain. To every forty or fifty pounds of fruit, one gallon more of hot water may be passed through the mark, or husks, in order to obtain any soluble matter that may remain, and be again pressed. The juice should be put into a tub or pan of sufficient size to contain all of it, and the sugar added to it. Let it be well stirred until the sugar is dissolved, and place the pan in a warm situation. Keep it closely covered, and let it ferment for a day or two. It must then be drawn off into clean casks, placed a little on one side for the scum that arises to be thrown out, and the casks kept filled with the remaining must, that should be reserved for that purpose. When the active fermentation has ceased, the casks should be plugged upright, again filled if necessary, the bungs be put in loosely, and after a few days when the fermentation is a little more languid, which may be known by the hissing noise ceasing, the bungs should be driven in tight, and a spile-hole made to give vent if necessary. About November or December, on a clear fine day, the wine should be racked from its lees into clean casks, which may be rinsed with brandy. After a month it should be examined to see if it is sufficiently clear for bottling. If not, it must be fined with isinglass, which may be dissolved in some of the wine. One ounce will be sufficient for nine gallons. In March or April, when the gooseberry bushes begin to blossom, the wine must be bottled, in order to ensure its being effervescing. Seasonable. Make this the end of May or beginning of June, before the berries ripen. End of section 85